Thank you, Natalie. So I was in the midst of seminary, what feels like a million years ago, and uh, in my class, there was an assignment given that we had to do an interview of an individual and write a paper on it of someone from a different worldview, right? So someone who's not a Christian, who sees and understands the, the world in a different way, with different beliefs and so forth. And right away, I thought of my friend Mike. Mike had a, a friendship with, and I really liked Mike. He, is, uh, he was a thoughtful, he was a construction manager. In fact, he still is. And he was, uh, he was raised in a home of Christian science and had really stepped away from that kind of faith, uh, the faith of his, his parents, his mom in particular. And yet he was really thoughtful. He was willing to talk about it. He was, really, he was interested and he was engaged. He just didn't really believe. And I thought he would be a fascinating person to interview. So I explained the class. He said, yeah, sure, I'll tell you whatever you want. Right? And so I went over there and, and kind of a no-nonsense guy. He just kind of shared about his reservations, how he didn't see it uh, from a, a scripture and the way I viewed it and all those kind of things. It was really open. It was really refreshing and good. And then I got to this question. I said, Mike, do you ever think about what's going to happen when you die? And he was like, huh? No. I guess I don't really spend a whole lot of time, but I guess when I get there, you know, I, I, I spend my days figuring stuff out. So I'll figure it out when I get there. I thought, boy, what an honest answer, what a refreshing answer. In some way, a courageous answer, right? He's just taking it as it comes in that way. I was struck, of course, I didn't go into this with Mike at the time. I was struck that Jesus' words about eternity look pretty different than Mike's words. In fact, he'd say, let me teach you what eternity is about so you can prepare and live today for what happens when you die. Some of you remember uh, Pastor Rob Bell. How many of you remember Rob Bell? He was kind of he was leading one of the largest churches. He was kind of a, a thing, and people were learning from him and growing. And, and, um, and then he wrote a book. He wrote a couple of books, and he got in trouble with the evangelical world for one of his books. And his book, Love Wins, he talks about a, a great many things. In fact, a phenomenal chapter on heaven and the kingdom of heaven, and, and what that means for us today. But his chapter on hell, that was the chapter that he got in the most trouble with. In fact, he was kind of undercutting and, and, and really saying, is it really the way we think it is? Perhaps we've misunderstood. And many of the critics were saying, he's probably a universalist, that at the end of the day, everybody's going to get into heaven, that there's not really a hell. Now, God bless Rob Bell, and he's on his own journey. He's still on his own journey. But I was listening to him, and in fact, I was listening to some of his critics, and he was interacting with his critics. And in defense, he said of himself, listen, we're talking about what happens when you die. At the end of the day, no one knows. It's just guesswork. 
And I was like, I guess that makes sense. No. No, that doesn't make sense at all. In fact, from a Christian perspective, we would say that no one really knows except one person. That that one person we believe is from eternity and entered into time and space to teach us about eternity. Yes? That it's Jesus, the man of heaven, from heaven, came and he says, listen, listen to me and I will reveal to you what happens when you die, what it looks like, how we move in that direction. In fact, that was the issue with Rabel, is that his words were inconsistent in many people's readings with the words of Christ Jesus about eternity. Now, we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and we are finally to the final chapters <laughs> of good news. <laughs> we've been... We've been hanging in there and looking at so much. In fact, last week, if you want to start turning to Revelation with me, we're going to start, pick it up in Revelation 20. But last week, we looked at some really big concepts of the final trumpet blowing, of Christ's return, of the rapture, which I'm arguing is after the tribulation but before uh, the, the thousand-year reign, we looked at Armageddon and Satan being bound for a thousand years. I just want to encourage you. Some of you are, have said, yeah, Eric, this is a lot. Holy cow, can't take it in. And that's okay. Some of these concepts are huge and significant. And I remember the first time reading a thousand-year reign going, what in the world? So just keep returning to these concepts. Keep reading Revelation. Keep growing in your understanding, but always remember that the Lord has placed those in the, these verses and these concepts in Scripture for application purposes. He wants to change our lives on what we understand. So even if you don't get it all and understand it all, be mindful of Lord, what are you wanting to change in me? How are you wanting me to grow in me? And I would encourage you as we continue to wrestle with these really significant concepts that you'd say, I, I might not get it 100% and yet application. I'm going to be driven in that idea because I believe in these verses that we're about to read in chapters 20 and 21 there's incredible invitation for us today. That he's inviting us to do exactly the opposite of Mike. That we wouldn't go, hey, I'll figure it out when I get there. But we'd say, the man of heaven has revealed things of eternity, things of heaven to us because he wants us to live today in light of the future and what he's said. So I believe there's two really profound invitations, or you could say two really profound questions in these scriptures this morning. So we're going to read again, picking up from 
chapter 20, and we had just read about Satan being bound, the thousand-year reign, and the first resurrection. The first resurrection being the rapture when Christians that have gone before us come with Christ and those who are still alive will join him. We're joining Gunnar and Julia, remember from last week, yes? So we join them, we meet, we, 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 uh, that's the first resurrection, Satan is bound. Look at verse 7, when the thousand years is over, after the thousand years, when the thousand years is over, um, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. They've already done Armageddon. That was the huge rebellion that was there. One last time of rebellion. Uh, in number, they are like the sand of, on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, Jerusalem, which the, Jesus has been reigning for a thousand years with us. We've been co-reigning with him. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not much of a battle. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet had been thrown. They were tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, I saw, John says, a great white throne. Imagine John Remember, he's giving pictures in this symbolic language of what's happening. He sees a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the great white throne. And books were open. Pay attention to books and how many books there are. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. All those who had passed away in the sea. Uh, uh, the sea gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We're going to keep reading, not spend too, too much time in Revelation 21, but just want to give you this picture of the flow. Then I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They fled from the manifest presence of God. And there was no longer any sea, probably representing chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Can you imagine a whole city, a renewed city, the city of Jerusalem coming from heaven? They will be his people, 
no, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He, Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, incredible themes, amazing things happening here in the end of Revelation, where we're, we're the present age that we're living in is passing away into you could call an intermediate age of the thousand year reign and then the new age of eternity that will last forever. Here's what I'd like to do is I want to ask this question if we want to get to Revelation 21 and be a part of that new heavens and new earth the first question is Well, how do we get there? Isn't that a good question? How do we live today so that we can pass through all the ages that are there and arrive with Jesus Christ for eternity that when Jerusalem comes down and rests on earth, the fulfillment of the great covenant of God, that we would be there. I want to take a moment to nerd out a little bit with you in the book of Revelation, right? Some of you really enjoy the nerdiness of the book of Revelation. Some of you not so much. That's okay, all right? Because we'll nerd out for just a moment, all right? And then we're going to get to real application. Like, so we're going to simplify it as simple as I can make it, okay? Want to do that with me real quick? All right. So my approach to the book of Revelation there's so many approaches, right? I told, I've told you it's changed because of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, in a surprising way, informs um, uh, uh, the book of Revelation. We have a, a chart, chart number one. I should have checked these with you, Kate. Okay? But here's the chart. So we believe that there's a, a, a period, a seven-year period of tribulation that most of the book of Revelation is dealing with. And that is going um, all the way from Revelation 11 to 19. That again, there's a stacking, there's a layer that's telling the story of seven years of tribulation. We've gone over that chart before. And I just want to show you a little bit, I think it's neat, the connection between further connection between Daniel and the book of Revelation. If we go to the next screen, uh, screen there, we've got uh, a scripture of Daniel 9. And again, Daniel, much of it is a prophetic book, and not all of it, but much of it was. We believe that he was talking 77s, and there was a final seven-year period. This was revealed hundreds of years before Christmas, before Christ comes the first time. Says, he, the Antichrist, 
will confirm a covenant with many for one seven or one seven-year period. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. I think that's talking about the cross. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. This is then moving to a future seven-year period until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So that's where we get kind of the setting. Now half of seven is what? Three and a half. And we've said let's pay attention to that three and a half margin. If you look back at Daniel, go to the next screen, Daniel 7.25, talks about when the saints will be handed over to him, the Antichrist. It says, a uh, for a time, which is one year, times two years, and half a time, half a year. What does that add up to? Three and a half years. Interesting connection. Daniel 9.7 says this, it will be for a time, one year, two times, and a half a year, three and a half years, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. So in the book of Revelation, it's setting up the final seven years of tribulation and it's talking about midway through. Now what's interesting and what's connection, which changed, my perspective is Revelation, the book of Revelation, revealed hundreds of years after Daniel, picks up this concept of three and a half years. It does it in three different ways. Revelation 11, 2 and 3 says, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, if you divide 42 months by a calendar year, by 12, how many years is 42 months if you divide it by 12? It's three and a half. Mike, you're on a roll. Yes. So 42 months uses that, connecting it to Daniel. Revelation 12, 6 then says, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That's an interesting number. Now, if you use the Hebrew calendar, which has 30 months, and you divide 1,260 days by 30, do you know what you get? In years. Well, uh, in months first, 42 months, and then in years... Three and a half years. Interesting. Revelation picking up this, these concepts of Daniel. And then again, just in case we missed it, Revelation, um, oh, I, I skipped. Revelation 11, 2, and 3 uses 1,260 days. A repeat of that, Revelation 12, 6, 1,260 days. Then Revelation 12, 14. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly to prepare to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for, ooh, there's the reference from Daniel. A time, times, and a half a time. Remember that's a year, two years, half a year, three and a half years. 
One final scripture from Revelation, Revelation 13, 15. The beast was given a mouth to blaspheme God, given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. All right? Um, do we have the next verse? There it is. For the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished. Oh, no, not there. Actually, Revelation 13.5 goes on and says, The beast was given a mouth, uh, a mouth to blaspheme God and to exercise authority for 42 months. In my mind, it was amazing that the book of Revelation is picking up this concept of seven years of tribulation and talking about three and a half years, so really rooting our understanding of the book of Revelation in Daniel and recognizing that God has this planned out. Really convincing. But there was a twist. We got all excited about the calculation of Daniel and then Daniel ends with a few verses that were really confusing to me. Now we go to Daniel 12. This is ending the book, and Daniel asks when, and he says, go your way. And then it says, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, remember Jesus references that into the future, there will be 1,200 and 90 days, what do you recognize about that? It's an extra month, an extra 30 days. Why is that there? And then he goes on, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. <laughs> What's happening? What's why is that there? I want to suggest that those two numbers, no one knows. I'm going to give you my best guess, but no one knows. I think they relate to the end and how it unfolds. And that's, I'm setting up this final, I think it's the final chart for you. All right, so go to that final chart, Kai, and you have this in your bulletin, but you'll see the seven-year tri uh, tribulation. It's split by either three and a half years before, three and a half years after the abomination that causes desolation, the second coming of Christ, the rapture, and I got uh, this from Mike Bickle, and it was pretty convincing. He said, when Christ returns and gathers his people, he said, a lot of people talk about video phones and everybody will be able to see Christ with their video phones. He's like, I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think Christ is going to go across the earth and it's going to take some time and we're going to recognize and see Jesus in his second coming. And he's going to be gathering the saints to him and everybody's going to know what's happening, that it's the return of Christ Jesus. And then he's going to land the folks, right? And that's Armageddon. And that it's going to take a period of 30 days of the rapture 
of the landing, of the defeating the army of the enemy. And then what happens is the triumphal entry of Christ Jesus. You know how the Jews expected that? We celebrate the triumphal entry every year of what Jesus did, and then all of a sudden, wait, no, he doesn't rule and reign as king forever as the Jews, first century Jews expected. He's killed on the cross. Well, God had that planned out, but now the triumphal entry, according to the prophets, happens. I think that really could be the extra 15 days as he goes into Jerusalem and reigns and begins the thousand year reign with us joining, co-reigning with him in that intermediate phase and then at the end the great white throne happens the second resurrection and eternity that we are at in yes Natalie asked what I should title this final chart and I said my best guess <laughs> it's okay if you disagree but I'm not sure I don't think anyone has great explanations for those extra 30 or 45 days I think that makes the most sense to me. I think that we should be filled with anticipation that this is a picture at least of what I, my best guess of how Revelation explains the end times, of what the resurrected Christ is communicating to us. Okay, now let's get real practical and simple. If we're living pre-seven-year tribulation and want to get to eternity, how do we get there? That's the key question, okay? And I believe that there are two questions that he's going to ask us. That when we stand before the great white throne, I'll argue whether we'll, we'll be there or the first resurrection or second resurrection, when we stand before the throne of God, there's going to be two primary questions that he asks us. And I think it would be the better part of wisdom if we understood those two questions and anticipated how we will answer them. The first resurrection, actually both resurrection, but just before, go back to that chart one more time, Kai. So when Christ returns, I believe there's going to be a picture of reward that's there, but really lived out at the white throne. But, but I want you to focus in on this first question. Pastor Rick Warren, many of you know uh, from Saddleback, when I read this quote, I thought, man, this is so simple. It helps me understand all of these significant concepts. I think we have the quote of Rick Warren up there. He says this. Do we have the quote, Kai, of uh, Rick Warren? No? All right, listen closely then. We do. From the Bible, we can surmise that God will ask us two crucial questions. First, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? God won't ask about your religious background or even your doctrinal views. The only thing that will matter is, did you accept what Jesus did 
for you? And did you learn to love and trust him? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, no one goes from here to there except through Christ Jesus. There's books at the great throne, great white throne, and one of the books is the book of life. Do you know whose book that is? It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus said no one gets there from here to there. It has to be through me. And when we stand before God, he's going to look for our name in that. Let me just finish the quote, and we'll pick up the second question in just a moment. The second, oh, let's skip it. Let's hold on to it. Don't go there just yet. Build some anticipation. All right, the question is about salvation. And the focus is Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I would like to suggest that even as Christians, we tend to try and put a bunch of other stuff, whether doctrinal or life changes or sin, we like to put a bunch of other stuff besides Jesus when it comes to salvation. And I think that's a wrong approach. I remember back in, in college, we were dealing with a, a church or a, or a denomination, and they were, we were losing intervarsity students, Christians, to the, these churches. And we're like, what's going on? And they were arguing. It was an interesting argument from the book of Acts that if you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as most people were in mainline denominations, well, you potentially were not a Christian because Acts says you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And baptism related to salvation. So they would then re-baptize the students in the name of Jesus. And by the way, you don't want to associate with other non-Christians, so they would divide them from their family and from us. He said, we're going to add to salvation in the name of Jesus. That was a cult-like practice. They were missing that. Some of the Pentecostal churches, God bless them, brothers and sisters in Christ, but they claim that you need to be baptized in the Spirit, and the sign of the baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. And so if you don't speak in tongues, you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, and therefore you're not saved. See how that works? I mean, I think it's a great recruiting tool if you've got something that nobody else has. In fact, I thought maybe I would try that. I've been so convincing in the book of Revelation. I've been revealing it so much that I would like to argue that if you don't buy my perspective of Revelation, I seriously doubt your salvation. See how that works? Right? And yet, no, there's none of that in the Lamb's book of life. At issue is whether you've asked Christ into your life. In fact, the scripture that I go to again and again in many conversations is when Paul says, 
in Romans 10, 9, and 10. He simply says this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified as you, with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Period. Full stop. This is an invitation for us to simplify the faith. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about a journey with Jesus through the communion table, through worship, through Bible study. It returns again and again to the relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, we can talk about end times theories. Yes, we can talk about all sorts of things. But the reality is it's about Jesus Christ. You know, when I pray... For my kids, it's almost always that they would grow in intimacy with Jesus Christ. When I pray for you all, it's almost always that you would grow in intimacy with Jesus Christ. When I'm praying for myself, it's that I would grow in this, this dynamic, powerful, and life-changing relationship with Jesus because that's what it's about. That's the first question. That's the salvation question. That is getting from here to there. There's this powerful passage of scripture, Matthew 7, where Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he talks about people doing all these really significant things of driving out demons and doing this ministry stuff and, and awesome. But he says, by way of example, he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Who are you? Well, you did all these great things, sure, but I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This amazing, deep connection between how we live is to flow from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the invitation, folks. Here's the, the emphasis and the focus. What, what you should center upon is that we live from the place of relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter what your parents believed. It doesn't matter if you can articulate the, the, the doctrinal faith. I mean, it does matter in terms of our journey of faith, but in terms of salvation... Nothing else matters except our connection with Jesus Christ. This relates to a prayer that I tried to pray most mornings, and I would recommend it to you highly. Matthew 11, some of my discipleship folks know it. He says, for those of you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my... Take my yoke upon you. So every morning, 
I try and say, yes, Lord, I thank you for the offer of your yoke. This day I want to I want to dip my head underneath your yoke. As I understand the passage, Jesus is the other. And I want to follow what you say. Every morning, I want to pray that prayer because I want to live life connected to Jesus. I want to live life in such a way that flows from a relationship with Christ. Friends, we're going to look at this book and he's going to be searching for our names. And right, we're going to be like, boy, I hope he spelled it right because I really want to get, could you double check, please? We don't want to be in that position, right? We don't want to be like, well, could you, one more time, could you look? No, 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 no. We want to know that Jesus will never say, I never knew you. All right, second question. Let's go back to the um, Rick Warren quote. Please, Kai. Second question is, what did you do with what I gave you? Or another way to phrase it, what did you do with your life? All the gifts, all your talents, all your opportunities, your energy, your relationships, resources God gave you, your, your intelligence, your intuitiveness. Did you spend them on yourself or did you use them for the purposes God made for you? Friends, when you stand before the throne of God, to give an account of your life, the first book that will be open will be the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. That's salvation in and out because we are saved by his grace through our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Period, full stop. But there's other books that are there. Did you notice those other books? In Revelation, let's, let's just read it real quick one more time. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there's another books, and people have called this the book of, anyone know it? Deeds. Lamb's Book of Life, that's about salvation. The Book of Deeds is about reward and punishment. It's repeated twice in that text. Again, look a little bit farther down in verse 13, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Now the interesting thing about this number two question, this concept of the book of deeds, is reminder, the first one was um, about salvation and whether you go from here to there, but this one was about reward. This one was about that, 
how we live and receive, how we use all that God has given us, what we do with our lives. Now, before you think I'm a heretic for including this, all right, in other places of Scripture, it communicates that how we live, the decisions that we make, matter when we stand before the throne of God. Just have one of those in there in your bulletin. 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And there's other verses that are there. Jesus himself said we, were, we will be held accountable for every careless word that is spoken. Salvation through faith, right? Paul is the one who really articulated and helped us understood. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's, that's what it is. And yet Paul is saying, by the way, what you do in the body matters, good or bad. But there Paul is not talking about salvation. He's talking to Christians and he's talking about reward and punishment. I think this is incredibly important because I think that many times as Christians we can be so focused on it's just about faith and miss how significant and important our decisions are. Our words are what we do in this life. And friends, I want to stand before the Lord and have journeyed with him so that when we open the book of deeds, it will be more like a memory lane with a loved one. That Jesus can say, hey, Eric, do you remember when we did this? Well done. Do you, do you remember, Eric, when you veered from that? Yeah, you knew that was wrong, but you asked for forgiveness, so I forgave you, so let's move that out. Oh, remember when we did this, Eric? You did that. that this idea of this reward to hear those words of well done. In fact, in another place, Paul is talking about our works being tested. That they'll be tested, whether good or bad, or the viability of those works. Were they, were they for the glory of God, or were they for selfish purposes? He says, our works, uh, it will be revealed with fire. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 15. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built, survives, the builder will receive a, a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. I always think of that Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack jump over the candlestick, right? <laughs> 
Part of judgment day is we're going to have to jump over that candlestick. And everything that we did that was for our own selfish ambition, everything that we did was not for the glory of God, well, it's going to catch fire and it's going to go up. But everything we did with a heart for Christ Jesus, everything we, we sacrificed in small ways and in big, whether going on a mission trip or serving in children's ministry or a kind word said to someone in love, a forgiveness granted to someone who hurt you. All of that work in our lives is tested by fire. And what remains, remember that parable of the, the minas or the talents that we talked about last week. Remember, he says, oh, you've done a good job with the, the talents that I gave you. Right? Would you go, well done, now you have control over ten cities. He gives more. When we've been faithful with the little, he says, well done, here's some more. I believe in this life, I believe in the thousand-year reign, and I believe in eternity. I don't quite understand it all together. There's profound mystery, and yet this has been incredibly instructive in my life. That when it comes to a decision, I want to share that decision with Christ Jesus because I know it's going to be tested someday. How I live in relationship to another. I want to honor Christ in my relationship with Pete and Lauren, right? Because that relationship is going to be tested with fire. The words I use with Kendra, especially when in, we're in a fight. I mean, we rarely fight. But on the rare occasion... Those words matter. Those decisions and those relationships matter. How we live. Christ is inviting to you hear this invitation to us that he's saying in a, a, a simple way. I, I, I return to it again because, again, it's a simple way. Time, talent, treasure. All these resources that God has given us. That, this is the invitation, the emphasis. We live our lives for his good purposes. He's saying, who do you think gave you your wealth? Who do you think created you and gave you that time? I gave you that not to spend it selfishly on yourself, but to live in response to my goodness and grace, my generosity that I've poured out in your life. Boy, if I'm going to jump over a candlestick, <laughs> he's going to test my words. He's going to test the, the way in which I lived into my marriage. He's going to test the way I raised my kids. All these things. I want to be ready. By the way, do you know that Mike, he gave his life to Christ a couple years later? That now I believe he knows what's going to happen at the end of his life. 
He's not going to wait to figure it out when he gets there. He's living today in light of the future. Friends, I think that's why he's revealed so much in the book of Revelation. Yes, some can be confusing. Yes, some can be in this way. And yet, he's saying, listen, I I gave you all of this. I I love you, and I want you to receive the forgiveness. Because, by the way, without Jesus... We can do a hundred good things, but compared to the holiness and righteousness of God, it's just dirty rags. So we're not going to get there by good works, right? It's got to be through Jesus Christ. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus Christ. However, there's more books. There's another question out there that says, how have you lived with all that has been given. Would you pray with me? So just between you and the Lord, just of the two questions, what have you done with my son? And what have you done with your life? What's the question that feels like God is wanting to speak to you personally? It might be the first question where you realize there's some subjects in life that you talk about way more than you do about Jesus. That you're just living your life and you're not really ducking your head under the yoke of Christ Jesus. And you've got to return. Or it might be the second question. You've been living your own purposes. You've been living the way you think you ought to live rather than God's instruction, God's purposes. Just take a moment to listen and then respond to the Lord.